Welcome to For the Love of Yoga, the podcast series where we explore yoga, Vedanta, Tantra, and other schools of spiritual philosophy so that we might live more meaningful lives. For more episodes of For the Love of Yoga, visit us at patreon.com slash yoga with Nish. May these words serve you. And today what we're going to be discussing is the phenomena of suffering but particularly with regards to how to use suffering as spiritual practice. You know, because last week we discussed tapasya or tapas, austerity as spiritual practice. And we described various austerities that are helpful to your spiritual unfoldment. And I gave you the most important austerity for householders, the most beneficial austerity. And that is the ability to allow emotions to arise into the field of awareness without labeling them, without judging them, without suppressing them, and ultimately with acceptance for what arises. You know, so we uh, visited that Rumi poem, a certain Sufi tore his robes in grief and tearing brought such relief Nobody understood the purity of his action except his teacher. The purpose of emotion is to let a streaming beauty flow through you. Call it spirit, call it elixir. Opening into that brings stillness, peace, and emptiness. So those are the words of the master, Rumi. And uh, we explored how to do that, how to allow emotions to just flow through us so that even if it's grief or pain or anger, it's no longer felt as deadening suffering. Instead, it's an enlivening, uh, artful, beautiful experience. So that's what we talked about last week. Um, and we're going to continue that discussion. And particularly, we're going to zero in on a phenomena in India known as Kali worship, uh, which is central to Tantra. And as you know, uh, tantra is our focus, and, and unfortunately not the neo, uh, as my friend says, tantra. You know, the California version of gratifying the sense is a very different thing. So for those of you looking to prolong orgasms today, I'm very sorry to disappoint you. Um, there is virtually no instruction in any of the tantras, uh, some say 64 of them, uh, for 500 years of Indian philosophy on how to increase sexual pleasure. So that's not the tantra we're talking about. Um Instead, the tantra we're talking about today is goddess worship, non-duality, the ability to appreciate that suffering, that um, life in the world can be a means of spirituality as opposed to just a hindrance as the Indian schools of philosophy before tantra advocated. You know, so last week I gave you a rundown of the three approaches to spirituality. Um, and we discussed the difference between a verticalist approach and an integral approach. So I described how a verticalist approach is any school of philosophy that sees the world either as illusory or poisonous something to be discarded. So these verticalist schools place a lot of emphasis on renunciation. You know, join the Benedictine, Benedictine monastery, Dominican monastery, shave the head, wear the monk's robe, take a new name, leave behind social status, land, uh, job, all that stuff, you know. So we discussed Buddhism, certain Christian mystical schools that emphasize this kind of turning away from the world after realizing thoroughly that the world is not enough. 
you know, so this is a verticalist approach. Then we discuss the horizontal approach, which is uh, saying that all spirituality is baloney. Um, so let's just be in the world and look for as much pleasure and happiness as we can. You know, the materialist charvaka lokayata approach. Uh, and then we talked about tantra, which is the integral approach. And last week, I gave you the most profound sentence in all of Indian philosophy, Nagarjuna's famous line, samsara equals nirvana. And it's this is the line that is central to tantra. The idea here is what you see as suffering is actually um, the goal. It's just that you're seeing it the wrong way. So you only suffer because of a certain lens that you are superimposing upon the world. So the goal of Tantra, whether by ritual means or austerity means or mantra, is to change that lens. So what you previously saw as suffering appears to you now as a thing of art. Not just for a few moments during a sunset, uh, but lastingly. You know, so your lived experience is one of nirvana, not samsara. Okay, so we did all of that last week, but today we're going to go a little deeper uh, Westerfer gave us a beautiful story of his surgery and how Kali worship uh, uh, helped him through that experience of pain. So we're going to talk about today how pain can be ecstasy, how suffering can be uh, in of itself a spiritual tool. You know. Okay, before we do that though, let me just say this, uh, two disclaimers. The first is uh, we're not interested in dogma or concepts here. You know, like Christ the Master said, man does not live by uh, bread alone, nor can you live by concepts alone. You know, so no concept about the truth is the truth. No words about reality will ever convey to you the direct immediate experience of reality. And nothing short of that direct experience of reality in your own awareness will satisfy you. You know, it might feel good for a little while. And you might even wake up feeling like, oh, look at all this new philosophy that I know. In the long run, though, I can do nothing with words. Um, and they can become deadened thought constructs. So the disclaimer is concepts, dogmas, beliefs, these are only valuable to you insofar as they can point you to an experience that you can have in your own life to verify those concepts, truths, dogmas, etc. In other words, something is only true if it is true for you. And that being said, Indian philosophy loves debate. So if anything I say tonight sounds a little off and you're like, I don't know about that niche, drop it in the chat. And as you know, at the end of our hour lecture, I'll stay here all night. We'll have a longer satsang today and you can just ask any and all questions and we'll debate. Yes. Okay. Second disclaimer, not disclaimer, maybe preface. There are many paths in South Indian philosophy and all of them are seen as effective in their own way. And they all appeal to people of different dispositions. So as far as possible, I'm going to try to walk you through the garden or show you the buffet table. It's no coincidence that if you go to an L.A. Indian restaurant, it's mostly buffet tables, partly because, uh, you know, they don't know what to order if you give them a menu and they're like, what is alu gobi? What is palak paneer? So it's better to have it all in front of you. <laughs> you can see it. But no, no, even in Indian philosophy, it's a buffet. A lot of different things. Many things will satisfy your appetite. All of them will fill you up. A lot of ghee, you know, clarified butter. It will fill you up. They're all delicious, but uh, they might not all be your fancy, given your own predispositions and proclivities. So as far as possible, I want to present to you the broadest, most holistic picture. Um, but please ask me about certain paths that I might underrepresent today. So as you know, I am uh, predisposed to non-duality and uh, Shaiva Tantra. 
So that's going to be the flavor that you get predominantly. Um, but do ask about the other paths too, you know, we'll talk about them. Very simply, all of Indian philosophy can be summarized in one sentence with three words. And that sentence is, I see a pot. Okay, that's four words, sorry. In the Sanskrit, it would be three. But I see a pot. Now, I see a pot is the sentence and is the only sentence you need. It's like the key to all Indian philosophy. In fact, all philosophy. Because the game is how to read that sentence. Which part of that sentence is of interest to you? Where is your focus in that sentence? Now, I see a pot gives you three things. The first is the subject. That's you. The I, the self-referential um, experience of I am having this experience, you know? Now, I is the subject. The pot is the object. So we call this the knower. That's the I. And the pot is the known. The, the object of awareness. The things in the world. The people around you. Then there is a mysterious third thing, which is the relationship between the two, known as seeing, the verb. How are those two things connected, you know? Now, there are three, broadly speaking, approaches in Indian philosophy, and each of them latch on to a different part of that sentence. If you focus on the pot, uh, you'll get one result. If you focus on the eye, you'll get another. And if you focus on the seeing, you'll get a third, all of that. But this sentence is also your starting point in any philosophy because your experience of the world is what causes your suffering. All of your suffering comes from this sentence, I see a pot. And what I mean to say is that your phenomenological, perceptual experience of the world is where you start. So it cannot be denied. Whatever spiritual philosophy I give you today, I could say we're all one. Mind and body are illusory. There is a reality beyond the senses. It doesn't matter what I say. It doesn't change the fact that what you experience right now is here's a body. I pinch it. Ow. You know, there's a skin and it separates me from the world. And I feel like I'm an individual. I feel like I live in a world of other individuals. You know, I can tell you, don't worry, you're not in the world, the world is in you. And you're going to be like, that's not how it feels. You know, I look at the news and I feel oppressed by headlines. I lost a partner and I feel oppressed by grief. So the reality that you have to deal with is feeling like a separate self, existing in a world of multiple forms. Some of those forms are desirable to you. A promotion, a sexual partner, a certain flavor of ice cream. And so you chase after those things that are desirable. You crave. Some of the other things are, uh, you're averse to them. You know, the demotion, the vanilla flavored ice cream. I only eat the chocolate one, so I don't like the vanilla. Vanilla flavored ice cream, people you don't like. And so your reality seems to be running after things and running away from things, broadly speaking, you know. So we start there. That's where our point of departure is. And the Buddha was very quick to point out that he would encourage you to recognize this, this very fact that you are chasing and running as suffering. Life is restless, the Buddha would point out. So I know we've talked about suffering so many different ways. I'll give you a new way to frame it. The Buddha, you know, Shakyamuni Buddha from 500 BC, uh, BCE India, gave us three kinds of sufferings in his very robust philosophy. Now, the first kind of suffering is the suffering of suffering. This is the obvious one. Political oppression, torture, pain, dis-ease, sickness, all, all of that is actual suffering. And, and most people are like, yeah, I know, that's suffering. Now, you can spend your life 
trying to eliminate those kinds of suffering, and that would be a very worthwhile endeavor. So bringing social empowerment to places in the world that need it, bringing clean water and ending war, like all of that is really great. But say you manage to do that. You know, and a lot of you live in a first world country where you can go to Starbucks, you know, it's not like a war outside. So the suffering of suffering is greatly diminished. You know, yes, there's some aches and pains in the body, but the political oppression is not as bad as, say, you know, some of the kingdoms in India in the Buddha's time where there was like active war going on. So the suffering of suffering is one of the three flavors of suffering. Yet most people think that's the only suffering there is, you know? And they're like, as long as there's no torture, political oppression, disease, I'm chilling. Chilling like a villain. There's no suffering. The Buddha said, no. Pay attention, there's another kind of suffering. He called that the suffering of anithyam or change, or let's say uh, transiency. So the Buddha said, even if you manage to avoid all the suffering of sufferings, you're still going to suffer because things change. So even if you get what you want, either you change such that it no longer satisfies you, either it changes such that it's no longer able to satisfy you, or you die. Uh, you know. So the Buddha said, uh, when you get stuff, you suffer as much as when you don't get stuff. We all know what it feels like when we don't get what we want, craving, craving, but then we do what we want and that seems to have a new can of worms, you know? It's like, oh, now I'm gonna lose it, jealousy, protection. So the Buddha's like, please appreciate your dilemma. You know, by getting things you suffer, by not getting things you suffer, there's a bit of a problem here. But let's say somehow you manage to avoid all the suffering of suffering and you manage to get things that last. You know, so you avoid the suffering of change as if there are such a thing as things that last. But let's just say, you know, you manage to do that. The Buddha says, ah, there is a third kind of suffering. It's an exquisite form of suffering. It's a very subtle form of suffering. And you might not ever be aware of this form of suffering until you've managed to perfect your life on all superficial levels. So let's say right now, you know, you're, you've got a five billion, bajillion dollars in the bank and you're sipping your margarita in, in, at a beach somewhere. Um, you've got your health and your youth and your beauty and everything's chilling, you know, and you're there. The Buddha says the third suffering that will find you even there is the suffering of anatman or the suffering of the no self. This is the idea that no matter what, there is always lurking somewhere in the back of your mind this dissatisfied kind of uncomfortable shifting in my seat feeling that there is more to life than this. You might feel it in the quiet moments at a party when there is a lull in the conversation. You might feel it as you're coming down from your drug of choice. You might feel it in the movies when the theater is dark and you find yourself alone. Anytime your eccentric, exciting billionaire life has a little moment of pause, you're confronted with this scary thought, which is what is life about? Why am I here? Surely there is more than railing lines of coke. You know, maybe, just maybe. So this is what the Buddha called the suffering of no self, which is this imposter syndrome we feel as long as we identify with the body and the mind. So as long as we take ourselves to be this body-mind personality complex, there seems to be some kind of existential discomfort maybe. So please don't mistake the Buddha's suffering as like dramatic. It's actually very subtle. Remember the etymology of dukkha. Du means bad, ka means space. So dukkha, as you've heard me describe before, etymologically refers to a chariot. 
you know, um, and the spoke on the wheel. So with aduka is when the wheel isn't fitted properly and then you're in for a bumpy ride, you know. It's a very subtle thing. You're just kind of shifting in your seat, so to speak. Okay, the idea the Buddhist would propose is this. As long as you are in, a, in the world, as long as you engage in the marketplace, suffering is inevitable. The Buddha's famous line, dukkam, dukkam, sharvam, dukkam. Suffering, suffering, all is suffering. Birth is suffering, life is suffering, death is... You might think this guy is a bit of a party pooper, huh? Um, And it's actually a very optimistic philosophy. I've joked with you before, while the uh, French um, philosophers like Satra and Camus are smoking cigarettes on left bank saying, why should we not kill ourselves? I was really racist, I'm sorry. But while the French philosophers are like asking the question of why they shouldn't kill themselves, um, they weren't able to find meaning. You know, Camus gives you just make whatever meaning you can. You know, Sisyphus must push the rock up. There's no... Uh, intrinsic meaning in the world. The Buddha didn't do that. The Buddha never stopped after pointing out suffering. You know, the Buddha went on further to say, because there is suffering, I've devoted my life to the solving of it. And I found a way out, but please don't take my word for it. You know, so the Buddha was very careful not to give you more concepts. The Buddha gave you a method and he refused to answer any questions that didn't pertain immediately to the practical method. You know, the Buddha was like a surgeon. I've diagnosed it. Here's where suffering is. Here's the solution. Remove it. You know, but the Buddha, what about reincarnation? Does the Buddha get reincarnated? Ah, the Buddha would say, pure speculation. That doesn't help you become enlightened. I'm not going to answer that. You know, so the Buddha was very focused, very practical. Now, the Buddha defines suffering as such, but the Buddhist and the yogis say Once you recognize suffering in the world, it makes no sense to stay in the world. You know, it makes no sense to continue holding on to the suffering. Remember the story I gave you last week, the monkey turning into the monk? You know, the monkey uh, is stealing from the farmer's banana trees. So the farmer says, here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to take all the bananas and I'll put it in a jar. But the jar is such that if the monkey tries to pull the bananas out, it won't be able to lift its hand out of the jar. You know, so one day... Farmer puts the jar there, leaves the bananas inside and he hides, you know. So the monkey comes, Lesange, monkey comes. And he puts his hand inside, grabs the bananas and tries to pull it out but can't. At which point the farmer jumps out from behind hiding and starts to mercilessly beat the monkey. And it's a tragic scene, you know, the monkey is howling and howling. But as long as it holds the banana, it's going to get beaten, you know. It's not going to... Uh... All the monkey needs to do to avoid this suffering is to let go of the banana. That's it. You know, that's all the monkey needs to do. So the joke is, when the monkey releases the banana, the monkey becomes a monk. Of course, what does this mean? Renunciation. When you truly, with all of your being, realize that nothing in the world will ever satisfy you completely, um, and this takes many lifetimes in these philosophies to truly internally understand this, um, then it makes no sense to do anything but devote yourself full time to the task of liberation, which is finding out what there is beyond all of this, you know, so you leave the world. This is what we call a verticalist approach. So most of South Indian verticalism says, leave the pot behind. You know, I see a pot, the pot is suffering. Uh, even Shankaracharya, in one of my favorite texts in the world, the Viveka Chudaimini, or the jewel of discrimination, the jewel of discernment, Shankaracharya says this, you know, the great 7th, uh, what? 7th century, 8th century adept. He said this, 
Uh, we The goal of religion is to cross the river of suffering. But trying to do that while trying to make your way in the world is like grabbing a crocodile and pretending it's a piece of driftwood. <laughs> do you see? It's like, you can't have both. Wisdom with God is foolishness with the earth. That's what Shankaracharya is saying. So he says, the only way to get across the river is to stop grabbing crocodiles, stop clinging to the world, stop grab grabbing the bananas. So what does Shankaracharya and the Buddha recommend? They say, here's what you do. You shave your head. <laughs> really, the Buddha and Shankaracharya both shaved their head, you know. Shave your head, wear a certain uniform. Don't worry, it's not the somber brown robes of medieval Europe. It's actually a very flashy outfit. You'll get nice orange robes. And in some northern Buddhist schools, like red and blue, you've seen the Dalai Lama on fleek. So don't worry, you'll get a new uniform. It's very silky and nice, but that's your uniform. Um, you change your name. You are no longer Nish such and such. You are Swami Satchidananda or Atma Bodhananda, you know? And what do those names mean? Swami means he who has mastered herself or she who has mastered herself. And the name Yogananda I'm sure you've heard Swami Yogananda, all of those. The name means bliss through yoga. So the name itself is not a noun, it's a verb. <laughs> so basically, the name of a Swami tells you what that Swami is doing. <laughs> it's no longer defined as a noun, just as a verb, uh, a phenomena passing through. So this is a verticalist approach. Today, my friends, I will be telling you about an integral approach that advises that you stay in the world and not leave it. Okay, so the verticalist approach focus on the I. Say, leave the pot behind, focus on the I. Yoga is one such verticalist approach, at least traditionally speaking. Sankhya sees the world as being real. Sankhya does admit the existence of the world, but it sees the I as being categorically different and apart from the world, just like Plato has his two realms. And Sankhya, or yoga philosophy, says... You do a certain set of practices. There are eight limbs, just like uh, Buddha has eightfold path. And after that set of practice, you leave the world behind and you extricate yourself from matter. So the goal is to get out of matter as swiftly as possible. Uh, some schools like Advaita Vedanta or non-dual Vedanta don't even see the world as real. And we've described this to you before. You know, the world is seen as illusory. You are only superimposing a reality to the world. Uh, so leave the world behind knowing it to be an illusion. And your work in Advaita Vedanta is to refine your discrimination, your discernment, so you're able to see what you previously thought was real wasn't. You know, and of course, there are some schools of philosophy like Buddhism that reject the eye and the pot. You know, so the Buddha rejects the reality of the world, but he also rejects the reality of the eye. You know, he saw that both things are constructs and concepts, and they kind of put up a smokescreen between you and what was actually real. The Buddha defined that only in negative terms. Nirvana means blowing out. Blowing out of what? The dream of me and the pot. You know, that's it. So that's what the Buddha wants to do. But there is another approach. I see a pot. The third approach is to step back. Yes, exactly. It is non-duality in a way. Um, the only difference is that non-duality says I exists. Brahman, Atman, you know, Shiv, Shiva, I exists. Buddha says no I, no Atman, no Brahman. He said, where is it? Show me. And he'll go to non-dualist and he say, okay, Shankara, where is this Atman? <laughs> So the Buddha would say void. But remember, the Buddha's teaching was not static. 
We don't have just one text from the Buddha. His teaching developed through his, his career. And by the end of his career, oh, some of the most beautiful tantric poetry coming from him. Like in the Heart Sutra, he says, form is the formless and the formless is form. Oh, this is sounding a little bit like Tantra, huh? Nagarjuna, Nirvana equals Samsara. So even the Buddha admits that his Shunyata, meaning void, is a thing. You know, void doesn't mean nothing. It means no thingness. It is a thing unlike any of the things you've encountered before. Nothing can satisfy you like this no thing can satisfy you. <laughs> um, we will refrain from making any Shakespeare jokes here. You know, Hamlet, Prince of Denmark, no thing. <laughs> anyway, so Shakespeare aside, um, the tantric path is different. Yes, that is non-duality. Ah, yes, interesting. There are many flavors of non-duality, Morgan, and we can definitely talk about it after the... Uh, there's a kind of Greek non-duality, a uh, Western Christian Gnostic non-duality. There is Kashmiri Shaivite non-duality. And then there is Advaita Vedanta non-duality. They're all very different flavors with certain nuances. Okay, so here's where we, we really get interesting. Ah, Westifer, I'm so happy. Because Westerfer started this journey with his surgery story and, and Kali. So Tantra says, maybe there's a fourth option, you know? So not just the eye or the pot or the seeing, you know, maybe the fourth thing is the ground in which those three things happen, you know? For a river to flow, there must be a river bed. So for the encounter of an eye with a pot, for the event of seeing, there must be some kind of medium in which all of that is happening, no? So Tantra says, let's step back and kind of maybe look at it more holistically. And that means you both consider the eye in deep yogic meditation and you consider the pot and try to reframe the way you see the pot. Tantra's contribution is this. It's very interesting. It says, uh, broadly speaking, that suffering is not in the pot. It's not in the world. Suffering is in the framework that you use to see the world. So suffering is only in you. It's not there. The world is not suffering, Mr. Buddha. Your way of interacting with the world is suffering. The world is actually reality. It's bliss. It's exactly what you want us to find, Buddha. Tagata or tatata, suchness, reality, capital R. It's just that you're seeing it the wrong way. So what do we do? There are, of course, Tantra is like a 500 year long tradition with lots of different versions, right hand path, left hand path, kaula school. We could spend all night talking about different kinds of Tantras. I will come at you now from the Krama school or the Sri Vidya school of Tantra, which emphasizes goddess worship and non-duality. So the idea is generally this, the world doesn't... Um, or I should frame that differently. Let, let me step back, actually, and say there are devotional faith-based religions that are also interested in the pot, but they are interested in faith-based claims such as there is a God out there and devotion to that God will free you of your suffering. Notice most of these devotional religions depend on mystical experience. So, for instance, Paul the Apostle saw Jesus in visions. 
You know, and so he was writing for Paul. Jesus was very real. No, like Paul was interacting with Jesus as a lived presence in his life. Jesus as a disembodied being. And, you know, not to be flippant, but Jesus is appearing to Paul like Ben Kenobi appears to Luke Skywalker. Uh, this isn't flippant because in Gnosticism, they actually have a theory called the Docetic Jesus. It's a great Google. But Gnostics don't actually believe Jesus exists and they don't need to have a living historical Jesus. It's enough to have this disembodied teacher appearing to Paul, you know, and 150 years after that to John. So isn't that interesting? John and Paul are writing based not on what Jesus said, but based on revelatory experiences they're having. The prophet Muhammad goes up to a mountain and has a revelatory experience. The angel Gabriel or Jibril in Arabic comes and teaches him, you know, um, teaches, teaches him that. Then we can think of maybe Chaitanya. Yesterday was uh, Gaura Purnima for the Indians, you know, you know, uh, and holy. Today is holy. So um, Chaitanya, for instance, who started the Hare Krishna devotional movement, very dualistic because they believe God exists. No, um, also had a visionary experience. He went out into the forest and saw Krishna and he said, oh, and then he started to sing and he came into the streets. Now, the dilemma with most of those religions is unless you are Teresa of Avila, you have to take everything on faith. You know, Teresa of Avila, because of her faith, was able to get a vision of Jesus. But notice this, huh? In her vision of Jesus, it was not a brown-skinned man of the Levant that she saw. It was a tall European gentleman. Her vision of Jesus conformed to her projection of Jesus. Chaitanya is not going to see Jesus. He exists in a culture that has Krishna. He's going to see Krishna. Often, your visionary experience tends to match your theological cultural context. But anyway, these events are real. They're recorded and they inspire great sainthood in people. So in devotional religions, if you are the one having the mystical experience, you're fine. But if you aren't, you're forced to take everything on faith. And that is a bit difficult because that faith sometimes helps you sleep at night, but not always, you know. And so you kind of crave for something more grounded, something that you can experience yourself too. So Tantra says that. Tantra is very phenomenological. It doesn't want you to take anything on faith per se. So it says this, and this is the teaching that will help make sense of suffering today. We did talk about the teaching a little bit last week. Um, and the teaching generally, sorry, I'm just going to make sure it's muted. Yes, sorry about that. The teaching generally is this. There is only one thing. It, the only one thing that exists is awareness itself. I won't do the argument for you since I did it on Thursday and last week. And maybe after class, if you want me to prove that only awareness exists, I can. In the immediacy of your own awareness, I can prove that. You know, it's philosophically very obvious. But Tantra argues only awareness exists. So the world emanates out of awareness. It's not that you are in the world. The world is in you. So awareness gives rise to the mind. The mind gives rise to the body with all of its sense organs and those sense organs give rise to the world, you know. So that's tantric worldview. And the idea is that nothing really exists absolutely outside of this pure awareness. And you don't experience that because you're holding on to certain concepts that keep you from these truths. Why are you holding on to certain concepts? Now, the idea is that this awareness has a desire, we call it itcha shakti, uh, urge, if you will, to create art, 
So what this awareness did was emanate or breathe forth a world of form. But in order to enjoy that world of form, it had to, for a moment, use the men in black button, you know, the memory erasal button, and identify with a limited form. So Nish is a wave that arose in the ocean. Nish suffers insofar as he experiences, experiences himself as just a wave in, and there are other waves. You know, when Nish discovers that he is the ocean and not the wave, when he is the whole and not the part, not only does all his suffering go away. I mean, after all, why should I fear disease, death, blame? You know, again, why should I hanker after health, praise, uh, fortune, knowing myself to be more than just that one wave, you know? So it's like the Rumi poem, give up the drop, become the ocean. It's like that. So once you awaken to the reality of ocean, you know that the wave is sacred too. It's part of the ocean. And you can start enjoying unity in diversity. That's the goal. So the goal is not to obliterate diversity. It's not to smooth over the variety of life and rest in this homogenous, pure consciousness experience. A lot of South Asian philosophy advocates that. You know, like, oh, just meditate and the world will fade away and you'll sit. Absorbed in samadhi, pure awareness. And that's great. That's good and all. But Tantra says, no, 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 there's more. Tantra says you don't need to just be wrapped in oneness. You can experience that oneness in the world. So Tantra says the world isn't illusory, nor is it something to be cast away as a, a snake or an, a crocodile or an impediment. It's more likely that if you transform the world, you will start to see it for its true reason, which is art. So the name for the world is Shiva Lila, or the game of Shiva. Shiva, by the way, being that consciousness, that awareness. She means uh, to lie down, same as Shavasan, and Va means vastness. So Shiva means the vast ground of being. See, the knower, the known, and the knowing, the, the eye, the pot, and the seeing, all exist within this Shiva, this vast ground of being. So the eye is a wave, you know, the pot is a wave, the seeing is also a wave, the Buddha's like, no waves, no waves. Tantrics, tantrikas are surfing. <laughs> That's the difference. No, Tantrika says, um, let's see all of these as waves, but notice that they are made of water. So this is what we call opening the third eye of Shiva. That's how we experience the world for what it is. So that's why Tantra creates one more name, and that name is Shakti. This is the most important part of our discussion today. Shakti means power. Shiva and Shakti are two ways of looking at the same thing, right? Samsara equals Nirvana. It's the same thing. Shakti is the manifest world that you as a jiva, meaning a personality, experience. So you experience a world of pure energy. Uh, Shakti is the very body of the universe. And so the idea in Kaula or Krama Tantra is that you can only worship the world as a goddess. And in Indian spirituality, the goddess is not a fertility goddess, by the way. She's not like a passive. She is knife-wielding, fierce, tongue-sticking out, bare-breasted, dancing, ecstatic, wild woman goddess. She's associated to the right hand and power and activity. Whereas he is seen as a passive, lying-down, sleeping male lion kind of person. <laughs> so if you see a picture of Kali, she's often stepping on him. He's lying down, you know? 
I'm going to tell you a few stories today and maybe unpack what they mean in terms of Kali worship. So the idea now is we don't reject the world as, a, as Shankaracharya's crocodile, nor do we do reject the world as the Buddha's samsara, nor do we even reject the world as an illusory maya. We call the world Shakti. Now, if you don't know her intimately, she appears incredibly frightening to you. That's why the depiction of Shakti artistically is often terrifying. But Shakti or Kali is formless. You know, as she, as Shiva, she is perfectly formless. When this form comes into being, it's not actually real. It's formlessness parading as form. You know, so when this form comes into being, it's Shakti. When you see her as form, she is a terrifying deity. You know, so towards the end of Tantra there, and by the way, uh, for those of you who come on Thursday, we talk a lot about the practicality of Tantra, how Tantric ritual and practice works. Uh, you'll know that the Tantric practice par excellence is metaphor and art. Uh, so Tantra adds to Indian spirituality the art of using art Art of using art. <laughs> Sorry, that was a bit clunky. But like sculptures, you know, bronze sculptures and images where before that wasn't present in India, you know. So even a Vedic ceremony in Indus Sarasvati Valley, Sursa 3800 BCE, at best involved a fire and a few mantras. There wasn't a mandala or um, a, 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 a bronze image or anything like that. Tantra adds it. So you get iconography. By the way, this isn't idol worship because tantrikas don't actually believe gods and goddesses exist separate from the one awareness. But as long as you are a jiva, you can experience realities such as gods and goddesses. You know, so Kali gets an iconography. She gets a metaphor. And if you see her, Shakti is depicted as Kali, it's often very terrifying. You know, so we call this the Bengali Kali. So I'm sure if you type in Bengali Kali, what you'll see is a black-skinned deity, tongue sticking out, often very fierce-looking, wild hair, holding one head, holding one dagger, you know. Um, and she's also called Bhairavi. Bhairavi means the awe-inspiring, terrifying one, you know. So Kali worship becomes important in Bengal and it becomes an interesting metaphor for today's discussion, which is how to overcome suffering. So Ramakrishna Paramahansa, one of the greatest devotees of Kali who lived in Bengal, gives us many secrets of Kali worship. The first one is this. Kali appears, you know, somebody asked him, why is Kali black in the iconography? Why do we paint her as like black and terrifying? His reply is brilliant. Ramakrishna Paramahansa says, Kali appears black to you because if you are standing far away, doesn't the lake look black too? You know, you're far away from a lake. It takes on a certain color like dark blue or black. But if you come closer, you will notice the water is colorless. You know, so the idea is when you're far away from enlightenment, the world looks horrifying. You know, it's dark. Ah, but here's the lesson. That too is the divinity. What you see as terrifying and dark, what you see as suffering is just one face of Kali and it is to be embraced, to be loved as the goddess. You know, so the idea is not like, oh, suffering is evil. It's the devil. No, no, no. There's no devil in this philosophy. Kali is all embracing. So the idea is if you still see your life as suffering, the Tantrika says, recognize that that suffering too is the face of the goddess. 
So one way to practice with this in the tantric school is, say an emotion arises in you and it's unpleasant, it's grief, it's uh, pain. That grief and pain only turns to suffering when you protest to its being there. Notice that you only suffer when something comes up and you're like, no, I don't want this. I don't deserve to be feeling this. Uh, you'll see this, by the way, in the Brentwood Starbucks a lot. I told you I wanted this much honey in my tea. Don't you know who I am? And I, I even argued to you, Harini, last week that Brentwood Starbucks customers experience more acute suffering than some people in war-ravaged places. I, maybe sounded flippant for me to say, but it's philosophically consistent because suffering is not in the event, it's in the framing of the event. The more you protest to what's happening, the more you will suffer, you know? And that suffering is good too. Because that suffering is what paves the way for deeper spiritual quests. So we're coming full circle now. The reason I spent so much time describing suffering to you is because all suffering is functional. All suffering will eventually bring you to the point of spiritual practice. You know, you might attend a church and be like, I'm just going to believe these concepts. I'm going to believe there's a heaven. And you use that to help you with your suffering and then it doesn't work. You suffer more. And that suffering's good too. You see, you want to eat peanut butter. You're addicted to peanut butter. This is Ram Dass's metaphor. Tantra says, eat the whole damn jar. Eat the thing until it, you, you get nauseated. And then you're like throwing up over the toilet. Good. Ah, that's Kali. Come to teach you. All of that suffering is functional and therefore it is the goddess. So the first lesson is Kali appears terrifying to you as a jiva. And Westifer's story last week showed you that. In the beginning, she was terrifying. And then he fell in love with her and she was sweet and kind. And so in the beginning, Kali appears to you terrifying. That's only one of her faces, not to be rejected. If you are able to open up into the experience of suffering, as per that Rumi poem, then you experience a different form of Kali. She becomes white or golden. We call this a... Um, Shyama, Mother Shyama, you know, the beautiful golden dark one. Um, and then that suffering doesn't feel like a contraction, like a deadening. It feels like an enlivening. Even grief can be a, a thing of beauty, a sharp feeling of just I'm aliveness, you know. Then Kali starts to change a little bit. The world starts to become less threatening. Nothing that can happen to you is scary, you know, because it's just energy. It's just uh, emotion, you know, that word emotion energy in motion. See? So any kind of feeling that you get is Kali because Kali is by definition dynamic. Let's look at her name, Kali, from the Sanskrit Kala, meaning Kala, meaning time. Not Kala, that's something else. Kala, meaning time. So Kali is time and time, as the hymn in the Artharva Veda says, is greater than even the greatest of gods because it contains all things. Time is a movement. Time is flux. Time is change. So Kali, even definitionally in her name, is all about movement. You know, so when you experience emotion, you will just experience energy. All energy is just forms of the one goddess. You know, so I'll give you a story now. Kali, this is a mythological story. Kali, went, uh, sorry, Durga. Durga is one of the nine forms of Kali. And Durga went to war against a demon named Ratka Bija, which means blood seed. You know, Ratka blood, Bij seed. Ratka Bija is the demon named blood seed. So Durga is fighting this demon. And every time she slashes it, its blood would fall to the floor and spawn more Ratka Bijas. You know, so the dilemma is the more she fought it, 
the more of them there were. And as I explained in that TikTok some time ago, that's a metaphor for your mind. You cannot defeat the mind by using its methods. You can't fight fire with fire, really, in this sense. You cannot think yourself out of a prison house made of thought, to borrow uh, Krishna Das's phrase. You cannot suppress the suppression program because that's more of the program. So this is the metaphor. If you fight your demons, if you try to fight your way into peace, you're never going to do it. The resistance will increase. What you resist persists, you know. So that's the story of Durga and Ratka Bija. So what does Durga do? She calls Kali. In some versions, she calls Kali to the battlefield. In other versions, she changes into Kali. In other versions, she shoots Kali out of her third eye. See, wisdom eye, third eye. So Durga has the wisdom to bring Kali. So what does Kali do? She cuts Ratka Bija. But before the blood can fall to the floor, Kali goes, ah, licks it up. She sticks her tongue up, uh, tongue out and laps up the blood. So before the blood can fall to the floor and make more demons, she's sensually, uh, intimately just licking it. Remember the strength card in the tarot, the rider, uh, sorry, not rider, wait, the weightsmith, you know, to honor Pamela, weightsmith tarot. It's not killing the lion. She's closing the mouth gently. You know, the idea is the way you deal with suffering is not protest resistance. It's intimate embrace. So Kali with her tongue out, wild and ecstatic, she's saying yes to everything. Like, yes, I, I, I eat it. Give it to me. Yum. You know, I'll take that energy, please. So what happens? Kali laps up Ratka Bija's blood and Kali becomes drunk. She becomes absolutely ecstatic. This is what your life will feel like as a tantrika. You will be ecstatic all the time. You will be reeling uh, because every experience is like wine. That's why Rumi always talks about wine, no? It's, it is ecstatic. Life is ecstatic as Kali. It's a dance. So she licks up her suffering. She gets enlivened by suffering. And then she starts to dance. You know, that's her thing. She starts to dance. And her cosmic dance, her hysterical laughter, starts to rip the world asunder. What is the world? The word world comes from the Norse word verald. Ver means man. Verald means man world. World is literally your conglomerate of concepts that is your fictional reality. You know, the world is what you constructed with your various conceptual superimpositions onto reality. So when you drink up your sadness, your grief, your pain, you dance and that dance renders the world asunder. The illusion is ripped. Of course, Shiva shows up and Shiva's like, babe, because, uh, you know, it's wife in this story. Babe, don't destroy the world. Okay, um, like th- I-, I built it. <laughs> I took some time to craft this world. Don't rip it asunder. So what does he do? He lies down and she starts to dance on his chest and realizes that she's dancing on her husband. And she's like, okay, I'm going to... Uh, in one version of the story, she like chills. In another version of the story, she dances even more ecstatically because now her husband is here. So the idea is your drunken revelry, your ecstasy will not be out of control. Not really like Drukpa Kinle or anything necessarily because your consciousness will keep you grounded. So you're grounded in reality, but you're enjoying this Leela, this play, you know. So that's one story of Kali. The head that she holds is your severed ego, your false self. 
You know, so she's got a sickle, much like the sickle of time in the tarot card death. She's come to use time and suffering to sever your head. So suffering, Dukkha, is the body of Kali. It's Kali appearing to you. So don't worship a god of peace, love, and flowers only. If you tell me that nature is sweet, oh, look at the mother hand with her chicks. You are selectively viewing nature. No, you must also see the tiger eating her cubs. If you tell me that God is everything, but you only want to accept God in the good things, where is your faith? Can you not see the divine in suffering? Can you not watch the news and see the terrific horrors of the world and see that as Kali too? You know? And last week we had a long conversation about morality and what that does for charity and all that. You know, you can revisit that discussion. For now, it's enough to say that Kali worship begins with an acceptance of suffering. You know, so you set up a fearsome image of Kali. I don't know if you can see the one on my altar, but it's the black Bengali Kali. You know, it's black. Uh, by the way, the skulls on her neck, uh, the, the heads, there are 52 of them. Why? Because there are 52 letters in the Sanskrit alphabet. She wears it to make fun of your learning. It's like the Buddha, you know, it's like you can't learn your way into this knowledge. So she wears, she's like ringed, she's garlanded in letters. Some of you are tantric scholars. You know that text, Malini Vigayotaro Tantra, the letters of the, the uh, goddess garlanded in letters. That's a reference to Kali. She's garlanded in letters. Um, and in one story, I'll close with this story. Uh, it's from the Chumma Sanketa Prakasha, a beautiful story capturing Tantra. And we'll close here. Tantrikas, especially in the Kaula Krama school, love cemeteries. We're obsessed with cemeteries. If you want to find us, we'll be in the cemetery. What are we doing in the cemetery? Confronting fear. <laughs> in, uh, looking at death. It's like the Buddhist corpse vision, you know. Uh, it, it, tantrikas, tantrikas, practice, practitioners of the path of Tantra, particularly the Kaula or Krama schools of Tantra. We go to cemeteries um, and we usually hang out there on new moon nights because it's scary, you know. Um, and we know not to run from fear. After all, fear is Kali. We embrace the blackness of Kali, the horror of Kali, because she's just energy. So we'll go to the cemeteries um, and we'll learn from our guru there. Often, you'll uh, not a cemetery, it's a cremation ground, because in India we burn, you know, we don't bury. So we go to the cremation ground and, you know, you'll often see the agoris, which kind of like is an embarrassing cousin of our tradition. But you'll see the agoris with their skull bowl, eating out of the skull bowl, drinking out of the skull bowl. You'll see some of us sitting on corpses, meditating. <laughs> Now, all of this is a way to interact with death, and it can be very frightening for the unprepared Western mind, you know. Now, in the Chuma Sanketa Prakash, and we'll close with this story, this tantrika, uh, funnily, his name is Nishkriyananda, which I think is quite sweet. But Nishkriyananda is writing about his experience one day in the cemetery. He's there, and in front of him is his teacher. Uh, called Siddha Natha, the uh, perfected lord, lord of the Siddhas. Siddha Natha doesn't talk. Tantra is about silence. It's about energetic vibration. So Siddha Natha doesn't talk, but he's instructing his disciple Nishkriyananda um, silently. And Chuma Sanketa Prakasha, this text I'm referring to now, describes what happens in the moment of this character's awakening. So here's the beautiful depiction. Siddha Natha looks up 
and Nishkriyananda follows his gaze and he sees a rapturous opening in the sky. And from that opening comes a visionary experience of the wild-haired woman. He calls it a yogini or a dakini, wild-haired woman. And she's laughing and laughing and she comes down and she says, you fool, you think you can learn from books? I'll show you. And she picks up a Sanskrit book. Uh, by the way, a Sanskrit book is two boards with a few leaves in the middle and it's got five bounds. So she explains each of the symbols. You know, the top board is the in-breath. The bottom board is the out-breath, something like that. Basically duality, you know, Ida and Pingala, male and female, all that. And she shows you that. She shows him some stuff. And then this is the most important thing. She breaks the boards. You know, so the breaking of the boards is an important moment. This is like a Zen Satori moment. When, uh, who is that guy? His finger got chopped off. I can't remember. One of the Zen guys, his finger got... Anyways, there are all these Zen stories of a person getting beaten and then awakening. Uh, Jesus is on the cross. You know, it's these moments of like intense suffering can be moments of breaking the board. And for a moment, your mind is obliterated and you see this awe-inspiring reality of Bhairavi. Uh, and he said, she teaches him, flows into his body, infuses him with the energy of Shakti, this power. Kundalini Shakti arises, he becomes awakened, and he turns into Bhairava or Shiva. You know, so he becomes Shiva, and then he flies in the sky of consciousness. Now, we will close today with a poem from one of my favorite devotees of Kali. His name is Ram Prasad Sen, and I'm using these translations by uh, Leonard Nathan called Grace and Mercy in Her Wild Hair. So these are some translations of this uh, 18th century poet from Bengal. So he was devoted to Kali. Funny thing about him is he only wanted to worship Kali. His father was an Ayurvedic doctor. So his father, of course, like all Indian fathers, wanted him to be a doctor too. It's a story as old as time, people. You know, son wants to be a poet. Indian father is like, no. <laughs> so um, tragically, his father passes away and his mother and sisters depend on him now as the male in the family to be the breadwinner. So reluctantly, he goes to Calcutta. Calcutta, by the way, the city in Bengal is named after a Kali temple. Kalikatta. So the very city is named after Kali. If you want to go see Kali, go there. Anyway, so in Calcutta, he becomes an accountant. But rather than doing his work, he spends his time writing poems to Kali in his ledger book. A fellow employee, jealous of Ram Prasad Sen, uh, reports him to the boss and shows the ledger book. Says, hey, you see this joker? He's just writing poems. He's not doing work. The boss, rather than become angry, starts to fall in love with the poems. And he goes to Ram Prasad and he says, Ram Prasad, you're fired, but I will continue to pay your salary for the rest of your life if you promise to write these poems. <laughs> you know, so Ram Prasad is the greatest devotee of Kali next to Sri Ramakrishna himself. And I'm going to read you some of his poems. Um, and I think this one captures it beautifully. I'm sick of living mother, sick. Life and money have run out. But I go on crying, Tara, Tara, a name of Kali, hoping you are the mother of all and our nurse. You carry the three worlds in your belly. 
So am I some orphan fallen out of the sky? And if you think I'm bad, remember, you're the cord connecting every good and evil, and I'm just a tool tied to your illusion. <laughs> your name can blot out the fear of death, so Shiva said. But terrible one, you forget all that, absorbed as you are in Shiva, in death, in time. Prasad says, your games, mother, are mysteries. You make and break. You've broken me in this life. Mother, tell me where I should stand with no relations in this world. The father loves a child loved by the mother. That's well known. But the father who bears stepmother on his head, don't expect love from him. And if you aren't loving, why shouldn't I go to stepmother? And if she takes me up, you won't see me around here anymore. Ram Prasad says, mother, it's right there in the Vedas and Tantras. He who repeats your name is going to end up with a beggar's bowl and a cast-off rug. <laughs> Do you see? And I'll close with this. I've got a bone to pick with you, mother. Do you see? Indian devotional poems use anger as well. We're allowed to curse and spit at our gods because even that is holy. It's thinking of God that matters, not how we think of God. We can hate God, and that's as good as loving God, okay? So see, I've got a bone to pick with you, mother. You've trapped me in a family, and seen to it, I stay poor. You picked on Shiva too, because he begged. The best ritual, no doubt, is knowledge, but charity is better than ritual. Mother, Radha didn't go empty-handed to Mathura. You only pretend to be pure, uh, poor, smearing your skin with ashes. So where is your fortune? I know you've got the Lord of Wealth in your pocket. Why do you hold out on your son, Ram Prasad? At your feet, I can defeat every evil, every foot of the way. You know. All right, my friends. In the name of Ram Prasad, Ramakrishna, and the Holy Mother Kali herself, let us close there with one final Om. Uh, you're all welcome to, yes, Israel, Jacob, who wrestles God, yes. So you're all welcome to join me in this chant of Om or not. So we'll find our meditation seat. And we'll perhaps bring our hands over our heart in Anjali Mudra. And we'll chant the four syllables, Ah, U, Ung, and silence. Let's inhale to Om now. Thank you all for being my teachers. Om, peace, peace, peace.